Well, Rosemary, Australia may not be the dangerous part of the world. It looks like parts of Texas are. There was a lady just recently who was out mowing her lawn, and a snake fell on her from the sky, just landed on her, out of clear blue sky. Landed on her arm, wrapped around her arm. She starts screaming, help me, Jesus, and starts shaking, trying to shake the snake off. The snake starts attacking her face and starts hitting, but thank God she had glasses on. So the snake is hitting her glasses and broke her glasses. Meanwhile, a hawk just happens to be by. Now, why the hawk is there, we'll answer later. But the hawk comes down, sees a snake on this woman's arm, and attacks this lady's arm with a snake on it. And after three or four times, eventually gets the snake off the lady. <laughs> she And she lived to tell the story about it. But Rosemary, it's just, I thought, this has to be Australia, right? This is not an American situation. I assume the hawk, the hawk dropped the snake on her and then went back for it. Is that the, is that the conclusion? Yeah, I, I think so, yes. That almost happened to me over the past weekend, actually. We have a lot of hawks in our area. And I'm at, when I'm out mowing the yard, there's a lot of like scurrying in the yard of what we call voles, little kind of ground mice things. And a hawk loves to come watch when I do that. And the other day, I noticed there was a hawk had picked up a little critter in the yard and was on top of the telephone pole and decided to fly over me. And he dropped that, dropped that animal. And, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get hit by this dead animal because it's right up right over top of me. Did you call for Jesus to save you? I almost did. But you know what the hawk did? The hawk dived down and caught that dang vol and then flew away. Thank God. <laughs> because if it had hit me. You could have been attacked by a vol. I would have been attacked by a vol and then attacked by this hawk. And that, that hawk, those hawks are big. Yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing. You know, when you're mowing outside, I was mowing just like this lady was, obviously. But man, mowing is a lot more dangerous than I thought it was. Glad you survived to tell the tale. So we're always looking for those dangerous things in Australia, right? And we, we, we couldn't really find one this week, so it actually turned to America to look for the, for the crazy situation. Last week, it was that Chinese bear. It's insane that people are so so stressed about Australia. Like, I've been to, to Canada, and bears will just, you, you know, you'd be walking along a footpath, a sidewalk, and people will be like, oh, there's a bear. There's, there's a bear up ahead, so, you know, be careful. Uh, nothing in Australia is going to, you know, like come out of the shrubbery and attack you. It's all, you know, it's just animals. If you leave them alone, then they're going to leave you alone. The emus, that's what I'm really worried about. And an emu will steal your lunch. Um, that's true. And that that will happen. That's a serious offense. And their beaks are big, so you're going to give it to them. <laughs> I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friends, Phil Totaro and Rosemary Barnes. Joel Saxon will be back next week. And this is your Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Well, uh, talk about someone who's struggling at the moment. Uh, Seamus Energy <laughs> has really had a bad couple of weeks. Uh, latest go around here is they're talking as of probably 24 hours ago. They anticipate almost a 5 billion euro uh, loss this year due to Siemens Gamesa, essentially. And 
that has increased dramatically. When, when, this, when this first Siemens issue popped up, they were talking about a couple hundred million euros sort of event. They knew they had a problem. They weren't sure of the scope. But it's multiplied by a factor of more than 10 at this point, and it's really starting to shake the marketplace. Phil, have you seen some of these uh, financial discussions that are happening in all the newspapers? Absolutely. And even just this morning, there was a Reuters news piece where they interviewed two uh, financial analysts from JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank that said that they're not even going to look for profitability until 2026. Uh, so if, if that. So this, this is a, a very serious situation um, for Siemens Gamesa. One that I don't, I think there's, you know, there's, there's uh, something to be said for transparency, but then there's also being a little too honest. And to be blunt, I think they're being a little too honest with the market right now about what's obviously you want to be able to provide and, you know, visibility to, to what's going on. But to come out, I mean, the company has actually come out and, and said that we basically sold dodgy products, you know, that were, un, you know, not tested and proven enough to be actually sold and, and be viable in the marketplace. And this is making their entire situation a lot worse. And they're doing it to themselves, and I don't quite understand how their PR and marketing people signed off on this. Um, so that's that's a big open question. It must surely be worse than they're saying, and that's the the reason why they've been permission, given permission to say say this, right? That's my take on it. That um, you know, like they're saying really bad things, so the reason must be that it's actually much worse, and this is better that people think that they, they've done this bad, really bad thing compared to what the reality is. I mean, I've got nothing to base that on except for just the same as you, like how on earth did anyone approve this messaging unless, you know, this is the good, the best case scenario that they could, um, you know, possibly tell. Well, usually when companies of this size get involved in a financial problem of this magnitude, they actually will hire PR firms that specialize in these kind of events to give them advice, because it, it doesn't sound like Siemens is taking that advice at the moment, or they haven't hired that company to do that, because it takes a certain kind of personality to know how to n navigate those waters. And if you haven't done it before, or don't do it for a living, it, it can be quite treacherous, because the marketplace is, is super aggressive right now. Uh, all the financial analysts are really sharpening their pencils and sometimes sharpening their knives. And it, you have to be careful what you say, when you say it, how you say it. And right now, I think, Phil, I think you're probably right. They're, they're just too honest. They're, they're too open at the moment. They need to hold steady for a little bit, figure out what's going on, and come back with that plan. It's going to be brutal for the next couple, couple of months. But I, I don't see how you move forward without some sort of PR plan. And, and let's also talk about the long-term consequences of this for a second. So if you remember back five years ago when Senvion went under, um, Intel store and, you know, myself and my colleagues, we spent, uh, months and months trying to convince three different companies to buy Senvion, uh, to no avail, uh, no, because frankly, nobody wanted to absorb the debt. And the question here is that in spite of the fact that the Siemens energy has said, everything's on the table, including presumably selling off Siemens Gamesa to someone else who would buy it with this much liability exposure. Because again, as I've mentioned, I mean, the fact that they've made these public statements, it's not just it's bad for their stock price. They could be opening themselves up to litigation based on knowingly presenting products in the market that were faulty. 
and and there's so there's a whole boatload of consequences that could come from this. Um, so long term, we're gonna I'm gonna handicap a, a little bit and let's talk about what what's likely to happen if they survive. As the financial analysts have indicated, it's probably years before they're back to any kind of decent financial health. If they don't survive, you could see an asset strip the same way you saw with Senvion. And if that happens, there are actually several Chinese companies, some Indian companies, um, and even you know more mainstream Western competitors that might gobble up some of the assets. So certainly... Their service portfolio is potentially attractive, especially since they acquired some of those service contracts from Senvion um, when they when they did that asset strip uh, a few years back. Uh, but this this could be the way this goes if they can't figure out what happened and why it happened, as you suggested, Alan. I'm I'm a little fearful. The other the other thing I'll mention real quick too is, you know, if you're spending if if the company is now spending. Uh, a significant amount of their budget on propping up the manufacturing side of the house. There's also a risk here to the long-term service contracts on the services side, meaning that if I'm an independent service provider right now, you know, I'm going to first go get a subscription to Intel store and our great biz dev tools, <laughs> but I'm going to, no, really, like I'm going to start calling every asset owner that has a long-term service contract with Siemens Gamesa to figure out whether or not they can break that contract and and maybe sign up with an ISP. I mean in in you know kidding aside like that is a likely outcome of of this. There there could be some significant consequences. Oh, absolutely. And Rosemary, I saw some numbers here about the quantity of turbines and what the specific issues are. So they're saying there's 2100 4X machines and 800 5X models that are out in the field currently. Uh, obviously, not all of them have issues, but there seems to be two main focus areas at the moment, which are going to drive all these numbers. Wrinkles in the rotor blades in terms of the ply layups and some sort of debris in the bearings. The wrinkles in the rotor blade, I do not understand how at this point we have the quantity of wrinkles <laughs> and in a in a manufacturing such situation which Siemens obviously knows about. Yeah. Wrinkles are a super common defect. It's probably yeah, I mean, between lightning and wrinkles, um, that would cover the bulk of the um the blade issues that I get involved with uh, in my work. So I don't think that the the fact that wrinkles emerge is uncommon and it is something that can take a, a little while to find out that you've got that problem. Um, because the kinds of quality assurance that they do in the factory, the kinds of testing that they do doesn't always pick up the wrinkles. You can do um, various kinds of, of scans like ultrasounds or, you know, similar to the kinds of scans that you do on a, a human body. You can, you can do that to find defects in a blade in the factory, but there, it, it depends. You can only do certain tests in certain areas. And for wrinkles, you can really only check where the lamina is quite flat. So you can usually catch them over most of the, the really critical parts at like the main laminate, the spar cap. That is pretty flat for the, for the most part. Um, so you should be able to scan those in the factory and pick up wrinkles, but I've seen many instances where they're just not for whatever reason. It's not 
a totally exact science. Um, so they make it out in the field and because you've, you've weakened the, the blade strength a, a little bit, but the main problem is on its fatigue behavior. So, you know, it's those little loads replied repeatedly. That's the problem. It's not a matter of, you know, you turn the wind turbine on and the first time that the wind bends it, that it's going to snap. It's not that big of a problem. It's that it's just got this weakness, this little stress concentration where the wrinkle is and that after a few loads, um, it, you know, it might be after a day, a week, a month, a year, maybe two years, you've had enough bends, uh, enough stress concentrations in the same place that it can cause that failure. So you can imagine if it's happening after a year, then you've already made a lot of blades in the meantime. Um, and if that wrinkle wasn't present on their test blade, then that wouldn't have been picked up in their, their testing because it's not present on every single every single blade, right? Doesn't Siemens have a unique way of building blades? It's a little bit different than everybody else? They do, but they don't build all their blades like that. So their, their unique way is they do have a one-shot process where instead of making the blade in two halves and then um, gluing them together, they can lay everything up and I think that they use these pressurized bladders to kind of make the second half of the mold and push everything out and they can actually cure a blade in, in one go. But um, yeah, definitely all their blades aren't made by that, like made like that. Well, because these are the latest generation, the 4X and the 5X series, would you would they not be using that process? Uh, I think that they don't necessarily always use it for the really long blades. Uh, I, I'm not not an, an expert and yeah, I wish I, I, I had checked check my, my notes to verify exactly what kinds of blades they do and don't use that for. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure that this, these blades would have been produced like that. Um, yeah. I've never heard of worse quality for that, that kind of blade than, than others. I think they're only using that manufacturing process for the, uh, blades that use the carbon protrusions in the spar. I don't think they're using it for the carbon glass hybrid blades that they have. That's my understanding. Yeah. And if they've got protrusions in the spar, then they shouldn't be able to get wrinkles. Um, that's the, the, the point, you know, like you've already got your carbon kind of laid out into a solid piece um, and then you put it in. A wrinkle happens when uh, usually a wrinkle happens when you lay the fabric in the mold and, you know, it's got a little a little bump in it and it could be for a few reasons. It could be because someone, your worker left a, a marker pen in there or something and the glass is going over that. Um, it could be because you put it in kind of sideways, a little bit, yeah, skew if, um, and, and as the vacuum was applied, it kind of pushed it together. Or, um, yeah, it could be because of a, a vacuum issue or, or something. But basically, instead of, it's like with composite materials, it's super important that the fibers go in the right direction because, you know, the fibers only transmit the loads along the length of the fiber. It's like, you know, imagine if you're trying to, I don't know, push something along with a piece of spaghetti. If you if you push it uh, along the, the long axis, then, you know, that would work. But imagine now trying to do it at 90 degrees and you're just going to snap that piece of spaghetti, right? And so when you put... Uh, a wrinkle into a blade, then instead of having the force, um, the loads going nice along, you know, in the straight direction, at some point where there's the wrinkle, it's going to be going on an angle and it's like that, you know, piece of spaghetti, it can, it can break, break there where it's pushing, you know, across um, at a, yeah, at a 90 degree angle or, or something smaller than that compared to what it should be. So that's where you usually see these problems introduced. But the interesting thing I noticed in um, the reading that I've 
done this week is that they're saying that they're blaming the wrinkles on a supplier issue, which is really weird because it should happen in manufacturing unless they're buying poltrusions with wrinkles in them, which is, I've never heard of that. That is bizarre. I mean, that's literally the point of why of why you you go with um, poltrusions so that you stop, you know, the some of the manufacturing challenges. And y- y- yeah, I mean, I guess it's possible, but I, I would be so surprised. And keep in mind, they don't have any um, contract manufacturing of the carbon glass hybrid blades. They're manufacturing all those in-house at this point. So I'm really confused as well as to how this happened. I wonder if it's like a, manuf- um, a, a vacuum supplies issue or um, mold issue or, you know, like uh, could it be some other supply other than the, but yeah, the, the glass or the carbon fabric itself just seems really strange to blame a wrinkle on the supplier of the fabric. I can't imagine what would be wrong with that fabric that would cause a wrinkle. I mean, I guess it's possible that there's something I haven't I haven't seen every every kind of possible failure um, ever, but it's a weird one. Yeah, it is weird. It does. I've read multiple reports about this that they're eliminating suppliers from their supply chain at the moment uh, because of quality issues. So, if it's something blade specific, it probably is something like a protrusion or a mold or something of that a resin system, something or the way that they're injecting resin. Something weird has happened there, and they're trying to figure it out still. But I, like Rosemary said, it's going to be very hard to to figure out exactly what's the causes and to eliminate it and make sure you actually have it eliminated. But uh, wrinkles in fabric are becoming more and more an issue. We're going to talk about that with TPI as, as we as we move forward today. Uh, so, you know, things aren't well at Siemens. Vestas reported a second quarter loss, uh, mostly due to supply chain disruptions and projects being delayed and trying to get the supply chain up and running again. It, it although Vestas is is it seems to be one of the strongest uh, OEMs at the moment. They are trying to refocus a little bit, trying to move some projects forward, but it looks like pretty much every manufacturer is is struggling at the moment and trying to figure out a way to steady the ship and right the ship and also um, set themselves up for a, a, a growth future. And Phil. If there was any company I was going to pick that was going to have a profitable second quarter, it would have been Vestas. And and now even Vestas is at a loss. They are, but I'm certainly, I mean, certainly compared to Siemens Gamesa, less concerned. Um, The other good news for Vestas is that they have gotten, you know, some long-term relationships established, uh, one with Iberdrola. Um, that actually Gamesa and Siemens Gamesa used to enjoy, um, with with Iberdrola being an earlier investor in in Gamesa. Um, so the, they everybody's suffering right now, based on the fact that we're still ramping up to um, order deliveries in late 2023 and early 2024 um, that are going to see a lot more cash come in the door. Um, so this is kind of the consequence. If you remember like six months ago, there were a number of companies that were kind of slowing down or shutting down production. GE was one of them as well. Um, and so this is just kind of the consequence, the lack of profitability in the Q2 is kind of the consequence of, of some of that. They just weren't able to recognize as much revenue in the second quarter as, as they would have hoped. Um, but again, they're, they're not 
doing poorly right now. They've got a decently sized order book globally. Uh, offshore might be a bit of a concern because of delays throughout Europe and elsewhere um, as per their uh, CFO as well um, has come out and said that some projects could get delayed or canceled. Uh, so there's some downside risk there, but for the most part, um, we don't see a, a long-term issue for them. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. Windblade manufacturer TPI Composites reports that it and GE Vernova have agreed to amend their existing supply contract to add four additional blade production lines in Juarez, Mexico. And the initial term of that agreement is through 2025. They're going to close that agreement in the third quarter of this year. Now, this is a little interesting because it, TPI most recently has had some warranty charges and quality issues of which the president of of TPI commented on recently. It says, quote, in light of the warranty charge, as well as the quality issues impacting the broader wind industry, we have taken this opportunity to revisit our quality system and implement improvement initiatives to ensure we have a more robust processes in place. This includes a recent appointment of Neil Jones as chief quality officer. Okay. So I happened to listen to the TPI investor phone call and it's, it's about an hour long, and about half of it is investor questions to the company uh, leadership about what is happening, what has happened, what is the deal with this warranty issues, what's going on with Nordex. Uh, there's a lot going on there because TPI is in a very interesting space right now in that the OEMs do not want to build factories. They'd rather have TPI add another line and make blades for them. And that's what is happening with GE Vernova at the moment, where they're adding some more lines. The question is, where, where is it? Most of the, the GE work is going to be happening in Mexico. There's Obviously, they have a plant in Iowa, which they're trying to ramp up and not sure what's going to go in there. But the quality issues at TPI are not over. In fact, the, the president of the company talked in that, in, in that investor call saying that they had brought in an independent auditor to go through their quality system and didn't tell their customers they were doing it. To figure out where the quality issues were, they have changed some management, and those management, change, management changes are not over, uh, that they, there's still some reshuffling at the executive level, it sounds like. And it, uh, the focus, they're trying to refocus on quality, but they don't think the impact they're having, which appears to be wrinkles in the blades, is is that serious. Uh, what... TPI is saying, Rosemary, is that the wrinkles, although they may be there, are, are not going to really create an issue. And to go in and try to remove them is probably a worse condition just, than just leaving them alone. Now, I think that raises a number of discussion points here. <laughs> One, TPI is ideally positioned, Phil, that they have all the, the lines. They got lines in Turkey. They have lines in India. They have lines in, in Mexico. They have a line that's going to open in the United States. They have a lot of capacity. Are, are they not the, the blade manufacturer choice at the moment? They are certainly for what GE is trying to do. So keep in mind that GE wants to continue ramping up their, um, you know, 2.x 127 product platform. 
Um, and it, what's interesting about this move in Mexico is that actually a lot of that, and you mentioned Nordex before, but a lot of that capacity that was built by TPI in Mexico was actually for Nordex uh, turbines that are not actually going, you know, there uh, some of those deals are not moving forward. So they had, TPI had the situation where they've got a bunch of spare capacity and, you know, they made the offer to GE to say, all right, well, let's take advantage of some lower cost labor and lower cost, um, you know, uh, supplies, et cetera, that we can, you know, fabrics and whatnot that we can get in Mexico or imported to Mexico. And let's fabricate there and import through Texas. Um, that's actually, you know, a, a pretty um, interesting and attractive thing for GE at the moment, um, who at this point is, as you mentioned, they're they're not looking to vertically integrate certain component manufacturing uh, like blades. They want to be able to rely on somebody like TPI that has actually demonstrated um, a, a good track record in the past. And, and so it's what makes some of these quality issues a bit surprising because it seems like they were doing fine for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden, these these issues started creeping in. Um, and the question is, is it because of shifts in manufacturing process? Is it because of just changes in the management? You know, what I'm, I'm not sure that we really got anything out of that investor call to, to address the question of why any of these things happened, uh, but at least they're being proactive to address what is happening and, and preclude it from, from um, impacting them further. Well, they have a quality system, and they're ISO 9001 certified. Look like I went online and looked, looked like all their factories are. And in that system, it's pretty rigorous. There's, there's ways to capture defects, report them, and eliminate them. And so it's a, a general feedback loop that happens with the ISO system. So it's surprising a company that size isn't using that to drive out quality issues unless they're just having some people problems, right? So even the, an ISO system, as good as it is, relies on people to be the, the lynch, linchpin to whether it works or not. So it sounds like there's maybe some people issue in the middle or pressure, financial pressure to get blades out and they're rushing something like that. The, the, what what the, the head of the company was talking about is like, well, there's a lot of, and Rosemary can attest to this, there's a lot of fiberglass we had to lay down by hand and, you know, stuff happens. It's all manual layup of plies and occasionally you have problems there. Yeah, but Rosemary, they TPI chooses to do it that way. They choose to make it a manual layup. They choose to have humans involved to do that process. So therefore, if if the cause is human intervention in putting the plies down, that's not going to change. I, I'm a little curious how they think you're going to eliminate it, that problem. Well, when you do a, a root cause analysis for a defect and you end up on human error as your root cause, you're, you're not finished your root cause analysis yet. That can never be your, your root cause. So um, it might, it, it's very easy to say human error and you could say that for literally any <laughs> problem that ever arose was, uh, you know, at some point in the chain, you're going to say, oh, it was a bad decision made by someone, whether it was the designer or it was, you know, the... Um, people actually, you know, doing the physical labor, um, but they should be supported by robust processes that are designed with the manufacturing process in mind. You know, they know that it's uh, a human making the, um, making the blade or yeah, team of humans. And so there are, you know, support systems in place to make sure that they do it 
the same way every time. So, you know, when it comes to making sure that every bit of fabric gets laid in the right order um, and in the right place, you have, you know, that you have kits made of the, the fabric so that it's all, you know, checked and then ready to go. And then you'll have like laser guidelines that will beam down on the mold to show you the edges of where it should go and where they should end. Sometimes there's mold markings, um, so like a little mark on the on the mold that says, you know, um, this ply ends here, uh, all, all sorts of things like that. Um, of course, things go wrong, and that's how you end up with uh, issues like blade blade wrinkles, which is the the defect of the day, it seems. Um, yeah, but the TPI are certainly not alone in it being a mostly manual process. Um, every wind turbine manufacturer is making their blades with a, a mostly manual process um, and eventually it'll become automated. Uh, like, you know, if you look in the auto industry, they're not laying bits of fabric by hand. They're using pre-pregs and robots and um, preforms as well in a lot of cases. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a different price point, I guess, and Wind turbine blades, they get the the right quality in the end by checking and repairing defects. You know, a wind turbine blade comes off the factory line with probably dozens of defects in it, but they're, they're found and repaired and that's just kind of standard. So instead of putting their effort into an automated process where you don't get any defects, they're putting their effort into finding them and repairing them because that's a, a much cheaper way to do it overall so far. Um, I've personally been a little bit frustrated that um, wind turbine blade industry hasn't moved faster towards automation. I think that there were some, um, some people got burned with, people got overexcited a bit early about automation and um, a couple of companies put in a lot of money into development projects um, to automate and didn't work. And now, you know, and I talk to plenty of people who say, oh, you can't automate um, wind turbine blade manufacturing. We tried and spent, you know, X million dollars on development and, and it can't be done. And it's like, well, okay, of course it is eventually going to be done. Um, and I think that you could automate more. There is, you know, there are projects going on to try and do that, but I think we're going to, for the next 10 years at least, are still going to be seeing a mostly human-made product. Um, so managing the kinds of problems that you can have from that that's yeah that that's how it's going to work and keeps keeps part of consulting and in, in business well you know we still have these these kind of defects arising well ge is still planning to build some factories in new york if there's plenty of volume to do it so ge put out a press release a couple of days ago you know, New York is looking to have about 4.6 gigawatts of offshore wind coming up, and GE is still pressing forward, saying, "Hey, we're going to put a LM wind power blade plant uh, and create about 650 jobs around that plant, and also create a cell manufacturing facility, uh, which will generate a little over 200 jobs." And GE is also promoting some of the things they're doing at their other facilities, including Greenville, South Carolina, Pensacola, Florida, and then even up in Schenectady, New York, they're doing some expansion up there for the 6.1 megawatt platform. So there's a lot of GE activity looking like they're getting ready to ramp up. And Phil, I saw some headlines just earlier today. I didn't have time to dig, at them too, dig into them too far, but it looks like GE's onshore sales in the United States are over 50% in, in, in the U.S. marketplace. Uh, for what was installed in the first half of the year, yes, that's correct. 
That's a pretty good marker, right? To, to kick off the first half with over 50% of the installs in the U.S. is GE. It's not a bad way to go. Yeah, and it's still their their kind of workhorse um, turbine platform, the the um, 2.x 127 and a little bit of the 3 megawatt uh, 140 as well. Um, so that's it's good news, even though they've had some teething issues with that 3 megawatt 140 with the, the turbine that caught on fire in New York um, at the 8-point project. But um, other than that, yeah, and, and they're actually they're excited because um, uh, the Cypress platform, the 5 and 6 megawatt platform, um, where they're going to do some of the, the nacelle, I believe it's the nacelle assembly in Schenectady. Um, that's, uh, they've got commitments now from NextEra, uh, who's going to be the first customer, I believe, for that. Um, and I think there's another project with Invenergy um, that, where they've been at least considering it. Actually, it's interesting because there's a project right adjacent to that eight-point project in New York where Invenergy was actually supposed to use the Cypress, but I think GE delayed the availability of it, and so they switched, Invenergy actually switched over to Vestas uh, in the V150 for megawatts. So, uh, but it's coming. You know, good good things are, are coming to light from GE. I sound like an advertisement. Yeah. <laughs> and GE is also investing over in the UK with uh, the ORE Catapult Group. They, they're putting 4 million pounds into a collaboration agreement. Now, Ori Catapult is where a lot of technology happens on offshore wind at, in the UK. And what GE is hoping to address is some of the deployment issues, and they want some innovation there, which basically means speeding up offshore deployment, installation, shipping, the whole thing. Uh, this, is, this sounds like a really interesting uh, investment because... I mean, there are a lot of offshore, off the UK, there's a lot of knowledge there, and GE, it looks like they're trying to leverage that knowledge. What they're doing with the uh, ORE Catapult in the UK is to actually um, look at uh, building digital twins uh, for operations and maintenance. This kind of builds on some of the work that they've done before. Um, in case people aren't familiar, uh, GE actually has a relationship, a previous relationship with Catapult where they're actually going to be um, installing a lot of uh, sensors on um, uh, one of their Haliad 12 or 13 megawatt turbines um, and doing a bunch of testing um, on that on that platform. Um, so this new agreement uh, for the additional 4 million pounds is to basically build digital twins and look at um, predictive maintenance on uh, different uh, offshore technology applications, is my understanding. Well, that would that would make a lot of sense. I, I think GE is heavily invested in the UK, right? It, it is a big marketplace for them. Yes, and they actually just started building the Dogger Bank uh, project, which is going to use the GE 13 megawatt at this point. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an important market for them. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound. 
but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. We're going to move on down to Texas because ERCOT is having a big fight with a lot of their energy providers, particularly the renewable energy providers. So the wind and solar companies in Texas are concerned about a proposed rule that could impact their industry despite uh, the contributions uh, to grid outages when there's high demand, right? So the wind and solar is a significant part of the ERCOT grid. Well, ERCOT is considering a plan that will require these renewables to upgrade the technology to, to avoid disruptions during grid disturbances. So in Texas, and ERCOT's not all of Texas, but it's the vast majority of Texas, they've had two sort of offline failures that triggered cascade events on a bunch of renewable sites. Solar sites in particular, I, I remember reading some of the discussion points there, and the engineers are like are super concerned about it because... Yeah, I think they had a gas-fired plant come offline suddenly for unknown reasons, and it caused grid instability. Well, solar sites and wind sites have a bunch of electronics in them that are producing power onto that grid, and they self-protect, but they self-protect at slightly different rates and times, and, and the tripping process is variable because even the technology made by the same company the next version of that inverter may have a slightly different response time. So when you mix a bunch of electronics together and tie them all together, if they start pinging noise to one another, they can trigger a massive shutdown, which has happened there in ERCOT. So the issue for ERCOT is, hey, we need to stop this. And they're asking uh, the renewable operators to upgrade their equipment, but they're asking them to do it relatively quickly. Uh, there has been some, this proposal of upgrading equipment has been bounced around and, and delayed from time to time, but ERCOT plans to finalize it by October and move forward with it. And Phil, it, this is a serious issue for Texas, right? You, uh, they rely on renewable energy to keep that grid alive. Absolutely, especially during the summertime where there's you know, peak demand. Um... You know, and solar and wind both uh, contribute quite heavily in the in the ERCOT market. Now, what's interesting about this is this low voltage ride through uh, technology. It it exists, and there's nothing new about it, and there's actually nothing revolutionary that the industry hasn't done. But like we talked about with this like noise ordinance in Nebraska last week, where it's kind of retroactively being applied to projects that are already in operation. This is going to be a huge compliance issue now for, um, you know, the independent power producers and the OEMs and, and other electrical equipment vendors who already deployed technology that didn't necessarily have the full capability of the low voltage ride through in the equipment. And so, you know, for cost savings, that was done deliberately. Like they, they don't, they're not going to sell you something like a Tesla that has upgrades that just aren't activated, you know, and you've got to pay for extra subscription costs to be able to activate all your extra features. Like this is one of these things where, like you said, they're going to have to pay to retrofit some of the substations, the transform, the pad mount transformers, uh, and potentially the turbines, depending on what they are and, and how they operate, 
um, with some of this uh, low voltage ride through equipment. And that's going to get pricey. Everybody's going to question A, how do we do this? B, who's going to pay for it? And you've already got um, GE, NextEra, Siemens, Gamesa, and Vestas have already come out publicly with statements opposing these changes. Uh, because again, even though they have the technology, they don't want to have to spend the money to implement it retroactively when that requirement wasn't put in place in, in the first place. So this is going to be a big fight. Is this the sort of technology, does it need to happen in every single inverter, in every single wind turbine, or is it uh, a service that could be provided by, you know, batteries or vehicle to grid or, you know, I, I, I'm not an electrical engineer, I'm not a power systems engineer, so maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but... Um, yeah, and ancillary services, good support services, aren't they usually a, a separate kind of um, product that is being sold into an electricity grid? So, you know, you'll pay a, a battery to come online really quickly if, um, you know, if a big synchronous load stops and your, you know, your, your grid frequency wobbles a bit, then you can say, hey, okay, we've got a problem and we'll pay somebody to come in and, and fix that. Why does it need to be something retroactively imposed on, you know, every single member of the um, of the grid? Why can't it just be a, yeah, separate separate service that they, you know, put out tender, hey, we've, we've realised we need this service, who, you know, bid for how cheaply you can provide it? Wouldn't that be possible? I think the issue was in the paper I read a couple of months ago where they had looked at the different inverters that are on the system is you can't really tell how it's going to perform. And you don't really know until the event happens. And then when they started digging into each of the different inverters and they looked at several of them, it was just inconsistent. It would be too unpredictable. So I think the issue is even if you had a battery or a synchronous load on the grid, would it respond fast enough so that all the electronics which can re respond in microseconds if it chooses to be, can it respond fast enough where you still don't knock things offline? I, I think that's the driver. And if they could put more batteries, more synchronous loads on, they probably would, or synchronous support, they probably would, it, but it doesn't sound like that's the option they're going with. What they're doing is they're saying, they brought in IEEE to look at the system and give them recommendations. And IEEE did, of course, it doesn't cost IEEE any money to do that. But now when it's when it, when it comes down to changing electronics and changing the designs of the system, that's going to get really expensive really fast. And I can see some of the older designs. Think about the old Mitsubishi 1000s and those kind of turbines, right? Does it even make sense to keep them on the grid? There's no reason to upgrade those. They'll just go offline. And I think that's the, that I feel I think that's what the threat is, that they'll, they will just disconnect. Is that the point? Is that the point of this um, this point, you know, this direction that they've gone? Because I really feel like this is not, um, you know, uh, electronics don't work any differently in Texas than they do in the rest of the world. And I've never heard of, um, you know, anybody else going for this particular solution. There are ancillary services that are delivered in Europe, but they're done under a different set of standards and requirements. And those standards and requirements are all known and established up front. Um, the other thing that complicates this issue is there are some companies that have patents related to low voltage ride through compliance. And so GE being one of them, 
So this has the potential to rekindle all kinds of patent litigation again between GE and other companies who, you know, GE got the patents on the low voltage ride through technology and then helped write some of the grid codes. So you now have a situation which we call in the patent world, like a standards essential patent is the only solution. So if you don't already have a license, that's going to necessitate um, doing that. So this is another complication to the whole thing. And that's why, again, some of these companies are objecting to wanting to to do all this. Uh, it's just, as Alan pointed out, and and to address your, your question, Roseberry, absolutely, batteries could help, but you're adding cost on cost because you're still going to have to modify the substation equipment and then some of the transformers and some of the turbines anyway, uh, with or without the batteries. So there you're looking at potentially doubling or tripling the cost with adding the batteries even though it would be helpful uh, and it would smooth it would smooth the grid but it's just a cost issue so our, our wind farm of the week is patent wind in pennsylvania it's an edf site located in central pennsylvania and became operational in 2012 it has 15 gamesa g97 2 megawatt machines and there's a lot of those g97s rolling around in America. And I chose Pennsylvania this week because it's getting close to football season. When you think of football season, you think of quarterbacks. And of course, the quarterback birthplace is in Pennsylvania. And Phil, I, I had to go back and look because I couldn't remember all the quarterbacks that have come out of Pennsylvania, but holy cow, it's a lot. From Johnny Unitas, Joe Namath, Dan Marino, Joe Montana, Matt Ryan, Jim Kelly. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of good things that come out of central Pennsylvania. And I'm I, being originally from Buffalo. I'm sort of partial to Jim Kelly. He's one person I, one quarterback I have met. I was on an airplane flight with him to Kansas City. Uh, he is a ginormous human being. As <laughs> a quarter, quarterback, you don't think is being that that big of people. He's a big guy. Yeah, after he retired, he actually opened a restaurant in downtown Buffalo, and uh, he was in there, kind of. You know, if you've seen any of like the the Rocky films, he's you know in there telling stories, and you know it was it was pretty neat. So there were a lot of people in the city that were were happy to have met him that way as well. So we're celebrating Pennsylvania and Patent Wind. You are our wind farm of the week. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening, and please give us a five star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.